following message is by a guest speaker of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Amen. Uh, the Lord's Prayer is the greatest prayer of the church uh, then and now. Uh, from Christianity's early church fathers and theologians like Origen, Gregory of Nyssa, uh, to Augustine, Martin Luther, to believers all around the world today, it has been a prayer that has been used, celebrated, and expounded upon countless times. But, but what about it? What makes this prayer so special? What makes this the greatest prayer of the Christian church? Well, we don't have to look any further than the one who actually taught us this prayer, Jesus. Jesus. When the, when the disciples asked Jesus to teach them how to pray, he didn't use parables or hyperbole or, or metaphors like he sometimes did when he would teach his disciples. He he was straight up blunt about it. There was no beating around the bush. Okay? He was straight up blunt about what to say. And using this prayer is one way of entering into the, I would say, interrelational life of the Trinitarian God. Jesus, our Lord Christ, the Son of God, the way and the truth and the life, the way to the Father who grants us full access into his presence, he teaches us the very words on how and what to communicate to the living God word for word. If you recall this past year uh, of uh, 2021, the very first message that kicked off this year was by uh, Pastor Steve on the Lord's Prayer. And in that message, we were encouraged actually to go about this year of 2021 and actually recite and pray through the Lord's Prayer daily and to observe how that has impacted you through this year. Now, it's been about 10 months now, and uh, truthfully, even for me, you know, I've kind of lost steam on that, okay? Or maybe the repetition of it has gotten to you and has bred some form of boredom or some kind of contempt, where the repetition has become actually meaningless repetition. And, you know, sadly, sadly, it's far too common that this great prayer is often more mindlessly repeated than genuinely prayed. So for many of us, we cannot count the times we have said this prayer in our lifetime. And, and there's this danger in our familiarity with its beauty, that it can become just beautiful words so that we say the Lord's Prayer without actually praying it. So as elders and pastors that will be going through this prayer with you um, for the upcoming weeks, uh, weekends, um, we would like to serve you as we teen teach this uh, through this series um, in hopes that a greater and more united and robust treatment and attention given to this prayer would for many of you, restart and reignite the practice of saying this daily. Removing the oppression of vain and boredom repetition and, and sparking a flame of insight, meaningfulness, and zeal, intimacy, and hope as this prayer is proclaimed from our lips. You know, Pastor Steve mentioned this in his sermon in January, but I do, I agree. I do believe that as much as we've heard that this is just a pattern that Jesus gave us to pray, 
and to use in every single prayer that we, we may lift up, even spontaneously. I lean towards the rationale and based on Jewish tradition and exegetical arguments that Jesus actually wants to say these words verbatim in this formal and set prayer comes great spiritual awakening and growth to believer to the believer that recites these exact words from the mind and heart. The late German theologian and pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this, the Lord's Prayer is not merely the pattern of prayer, it is the way Christians must pray. It is the way the Christians must pray. The Lord's Prayer is the quintessence of prayer. Its depth cannot be exhausted by exposition, no matter how one advances in their prayer lives. It, it remains the perfect prayer to pray verbatim for the lover and follower of Jesus. I remember um, growing up as a Catholic, praying this ten times a day, every uh, ten times a night before I went to bed. And uh, it, this, it, it was a prayer. It was the first prayer that I memorized, and the most frequent prayer that I've recited. And I believe that it was not without effect. I mean, looking back. From my first utterances of this prayer, I can see the spiritual growth and formation that took place even before coming to my own personal knowledge and affection for God. For me, the earliest years of my childhood, praying this prayer paved the way for ultimately coming to a revelation as to who God really is. And from it, genuine and, and from it a, a genuine and growing relationship with him. I really do believe praying the Lord's Prayer is vital to our discovery and rediscovery of God himself. So, I pray that God would use our time together as we teach and preach on the specific prayer given to us by Jesus himself. Basically, my hope is that we may grow in prayer as a church together. Not necessarily in intensity or eloquence right, or length, but to grow in prayer by praying this particular prayer differently with a renewed perspective, excitement, and heart. So, with that said, let's start. Okay, Matthew 6, 9. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Our Father. Let's, start with, let's, let's uh, focus in on the Our Father part, right? The, water, the writers of the Old Testament certainly believed in the fatherhood of God. Right? But they saw it mainly in terms of sovereign creator father. Okay? In fact, God is only referred to as father 14 times in the Old Testament. In all of the 39 books... In those 14 occurrences of father, the term has always used with reference to the nation, not to individuals. You can search from Genesis to Malachi and you will not find one individual speaking of God as father. Whether we think of Elohim or Adonai or the more personal name of God, Yahweh, is nonetheless striking that God is seldom named or prayed to as father in the Hebrew scriptures. Images such as Yahweh is judge, Yahweh is warrior, right, is king, that, that's far more prevalent in the, Old, in the Old Testament. It's not until Jesus comes when he himself, he himself places the emphasis of God as Abba, right? Abba, not the 70s band, Abba. A personal term of reverent endearment, kind of like daddy, daddy. Probably best rendered as dearest father. Jesus never addresses God as king or master or by, by other terms familiar to the early Jews. Just Abba. Just Abba. The word Abba was the word Jesus actually regularly used to address his earthly father, Joseph. It was a common cultural word. From the time he was a baby until Joseph's death, everyone used the word Abba. But it was never used of God <laughs> under any circumstance. 
Instead, Jewish theology of the time stressed the transcendence and sovereignty of God. So the traditional Jew, Jesus' prayer was revolutionary. As we scan the span of scriptures, when it came to the Old Testament, we find that God had not yet revealed his divine character of Abba to Israel in those times, but not until Jesus comes that he revealed the full character of God as Father Abba. Not just as a creator, but warm, close. God is that of a caring parent. So let me ask you, what is encountering the fatherhood of God like? What has, these, what has your experience been like in encountering God's heart as a father? If someone were to ask you, can you describe what it's like to experience God as Abba? Like, what would you say? How would you, how would you articulate that? Well, let me start here. Okay. Now, a personal confession to you. Uh, from my eight years of doing ministry in St. Louis, where me and my family previously were, and being away from my hometown, Chicago, for almost 20 years, I never, I never wanted to come back to Chicago, okay? I never wanted to come back. Um, and if it wasn't for God's call to me and my family to come back home, I was perfectly happy not living in the city I grew up in. I was fine. I wasn't a Cardinals fan, but I was fine in St. Louis, okay? I've been away for so long that I almost forgotten why I left in the first place. It, was not, it had nothing to do with the harsh weather or anything like that. It had everything to do with my relationship with my father. These three past years has been a long journey with the Lord in unearthing the deep wounds inflicted in the house that I grew up in. And how it's impacted me as a father, husband, and minister. I've shared in previous sermons about my struggles as a parent in raising my oldest daughter, Hannah. But I, one thing I didn't share uh, really deeply about was the anxiety that I suffered last year during the past uh, pandemic, earlier in the pandemic. It was something that I decided to address to my counselor. And I can only describe it as waves of dread within me that occurred in what seemed to be the most random times. I mean, I could be sitting in a staff meeting, then all of a sudden I would have a panic attack that came out of nowhere. I needed to get to the bottom of that emotion. So during one of my counseling sessions, with my counselor's guidance in digging deeper as to what the root cause may be, I was actually, with time, I was actually able to regain some kind of memory or vision of myself when I was five or six years old, crying in the middle of my room. The odd thing, here's the weird thing, okay? I actually felt the emotions of my younger self in real time. There I was. There he was, a five-year-old, huddled in the middle of the room, crying in utter anguish with tears of hopelessness, and, and I was feeling it all over again. This, this motions of confused, uncertainty, f- fear, right, loneliness, all there, and I was feeling it. Right? And then as I was looking at this vision, I remembered how unsafe my home was, how I would get beat without explanation, and how as a child I couldn't make sense of it. This, this must have been one of those times. So after helplessly gazing at this little boy for a time, heartbroken over his state, 
crying almost with him. Oddly, I was then instructed, okay, this is weird, okay, it's it a little odd. I was then instructed by the counselor to go and comfort my five-year-old self. Right? I thought that was weird, right? But I did. I, I was able to. My present adult, Christ-believing and following self approached my five-year-old self. I embraced him. I cried with him. And I told him over and over again, you're going to be okay. You're safe. Everything's going to be okay. God has, is, and will protect you. Then my five-year-old self looks up at me and, and asks me with tear-filled eyes, Are you sure? Are you sure? And I said with great empathy, tenderness, and earnest, like how I would talk to my youngest son, Joseph, Yeah, yes, everything is going to be okay. You're safe, I promise. He then disappeared. <laughs> And with him, the emotions of fear and dread were gone. Coming out of that session, when it came to my overall anxiety, it was silenced. Like, what? What in the world? What do you, let me ask you, you're sitting there and you're listening to this. What do you make of that craziness? What What do you make of that quantum leap episode of going back in time and fixing whatever is wrong in the world? Quantum leap, you guys know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah, some of the older guys, my age, yeah. Quantum leap. What was the theme song? Na, 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 na. That's MacGyver, never mind. Uh, That's MacGyver, sorry. Um, So what do you make of it, right? A couple of things, a couple of things. Number one, a parent's influence on you is more than you'll ever know. The wounds, not necessarily physical, but more the emotional and psychological ones that originated when I was five still affected me as a 40-year-old. The father you grew up with as a child is the one who leaves a lasting mark upon your life. Number two, children have questions, right? I'm not just talking about questions like, what's that smell? Or, why are you so crabby? I got that from Joseph. He asked me why I was crabby. I was like, you are, right? But questions underneath the questions, right? Existential questions we all have, like, am I significant? Am I valuable? Do I belong? Am Am I secure? Am I loved? Those questions are looked to be answered the moment we are born, And the first resource we look to for those answers are our parents, our guardians. For me, the question plagued me, am I safe? Because everything I heard, everything I experienced from my dad and the home I lived in, the answer was no, it's not. Your world is not safe. You are not safe. You're not even safe where you're supposed to be safe. And that answer blended into my anxiousness and panic attacks as an adult. (laughs) Crazy. That little child, that scared five-year-old little boy, never had a reassuring answer from the questions, am I safe, am I secure, by his father, by my father. A parent should look to, the best way they can, by words or by actions, give their children identity, which gives them value and significance. Or establish a place for them, which brings a sense of belonging and purpose. And, And maybe in my case, love their child with security, right? Everything is going to be okay. You're safe. You're safe to be you. You're safe to be yourself. I will protect you. Otherwise, otherwise you have a child, adolescent, teenager, young adult, adult, senior, that, that has multiple malfunctions 
in their life, right? Unhealthy leaks of emotion, maybe depression, times of low self-esteem, encounters of numbing of the heart created by walls built up so, so you don't get hurt again, right? One, oh, substance abuse, just to numb the pain. Amplifications of anger and sadness that have, have no, that are disproportionate from the giving situation. Like, like, for instance, a closed door feels like a total rejection. Right? Or a look away is magnified and creates a feeling of utter abandonment. Where, is that, where do those things come from? Right? Defensiveness or maybe even the perpetual passing on of abuse. Back to my question now. Back to my question. What happens when you're in touch with God, the Father's heart? Right? What occurs when you're in the Father's presence? If someone were to ask you, can you describe what it's like to experience God as Abba? My answer would be, you find the loudest, most affirming, most comforting answers to the questions about your life when you find him. When you find God, the Father's heart, he shows you your worth. In him you have a safe place. With him you find his pleasure and delight in you. And in him you belong. You belong. Belonging, significance, safety. When Jesus was giving his farewell discourse in John 14, Philip, his disciple, said some truth that even though he was kind of confused by, well, how are you one with the Father? How are you associated with that? Philip says this, show us the Father and it will be enough for us. Show us the Father and we will be satisfied. What a great truth. All this to say that when you encounter the Heavenly Father, you really have everything you've been looking for. Every question you ever had about life, about your existence, the Father has an answer to all of them. He is the answer to all of them. It is here you can actually find rest and restoration in His embrace. Significance, safety, and belonging. This is what the Heavenly Father, the perfect and good parent, imparts to his children when they see him. When you find yourself in the loving embrace of the Father, when you find that safe and sacred space in him, don't be surprised if you have a clear sense of purpose and direction. Don't be surprised when you are more resilient during rejection. Maybe security under pressure and accusation. Maybe you'll feel less of a need to defend yourself. Maybe you'll be less impacted by other people's demands. I want to acknowledge and recognize for a good number of you, the word father is a, is a stumbling block to you. Maybe you can actually feel a drop in your stomach or a lump in your throat every time you hear the word father. You will never get, and I, I just want to say this to you and, and, and to myself, you will never get everything you need from your earthly father, no matter how good he is or how he may have failed in his job. You'll never get everything you need from him. Just like everyone else, he is flawed, imperfect, and deeply impacted by his own father issues. I recognize that from my own dad because hurt people hurt people. Your dad, your father, was never designed to meet all your father needs. Why? Because your dad is not the source of fatherhood, just a steward of it. The source of fatherhood is your father in heaven. Father in heaven. That's one phrase. Let's not forget that. The first phrase in the Lord's Prayer is father in heaven. The living God is not just any father. He is our father in heaven. 
We must remember that it's one phrase, right? He is not your earthly father. He is your heavenly father. That's your starting point. That's, that's your frame of reference. Why do we start with him? Why can't we just project our broken experience of our fathers onto the heavenly father? Why can't we do that? Because the father is in heaven, right? He is the source where everything began, including perfect fatherhood. That's why we start there. A God who is close at the same time above all things. If father stresses imminence, meaning his intimate involvement in our lives, in heaven stresses God's transcendence, sovereign and reigning. He surpasses all that is human. Heaven is God's space where he resides as the complete sovereign ruler who rules, whose rule has, has yet to be completely realized on this earth. Our father is a king. Our father is a king. Some of that is told in Psalm 72, starting with verse 5. This is a royal psalm, and it says, verse 5, May the fear of you while the sun endures as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he be like rain that falls in the mown grass, that showers, that, that water the earth. In his days may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. The psalmist is actually singing about longevity and endurance. This reign, this king, his reign is boundless. There are no, there are no boundaries to his reign. It's everywhere. We're moving on with verse 8 to 11. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May, he, may desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the king of Tarshish and the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. The psalmist envisions worldwide rule of this king. Worldwide dominion. Here we find the king's reign is boundless. Ultimately, all kings, all nations will submit to his authority. God's reign and ultimate authority and power is limitless and endless. There has been never a ruler or a king like this before. The psalmist is singing about the king's reign as being boundless in space as well as time. As well as time. Now, another question. How do you feel about that? Right? How do you feel about that? Does this comfort you? Or does it scare you based on the things that we've seen during the times that we live in today? Does that scare you? Because one thing that we must grieve and outright condemn is the atrocious and destructive use of power for selfish gain. Particularly from what we've seen as of late from our leaders, from highly esteemed professional coaches to powerful executives to even clergy within the church. It almost seems like the more power one has, the more seductive it becomes to misuse it. The exercise of power of position to take advantage of the vulnerable. Right? Using emotional and verbal power to crush and silence and instill fear to promote their own agenda. Or, or the power of success or financial knowledge used to achieve ministry ends without integrity. But unlike many earthly leaders that we've seen countless times on the news and even our own experiences, unlike these earthly leaders that use power and authority in these self-serving ways, God in heaven, who has all authority and power, he does not abuse or misuse it, does he? What does he do with it? We have a God that uses his power to what? What does he do with his power? He blesses, right? He, he blesses people. We have a God that uses his power to bless, 
The two concepts of father and king can almost seem opposed to one another, right? We're not used to that. One who has extreme power and then, and then on, the, on, the, on the same side who has extreme love. And one who blesses rather than abuses. He, he always uses his authority to bless us, to grow us, to protect us, to take care of us. This is our God. This is our Father. This is our King. Diane Landberg describes an experience of that Father in Heaven power dynamic from her book, Redeeming Power. And she recollects a time when her son actually worked in the Middle East for a prince, a member of the royal household. She, she and her husband were invited as, as the prince's guests when they went to visit their son. They were given the royal treatment. From the airline to the food, they were living large. Okay. Once, once they landed, they met their son in the airport, and they were immediately rushed to the palace. Her son went over specific protocols right, with her parents as to how to behave, right, particularly with his mother. Wait at the door to be greeted. Right? Do not speak first. Don't even think about offering your hand to the prince. Do not... Do not sit until you're directed to do so. Already, this is becoming a very intimidating situation for her. You could picture that, right? And on top of that, she would be the only female in the room full of Arab men. Plus, to her son's knowledge, there has never been a female that has ever stepped in the palace room where they were all to meet the prince. Upon arrival, they were escorted into the palace and taken to the meeting place. She and her husband waited anxiously at the entrance, and they were then instructed and walked in. Well, there in the palace room were 15 Arab men of royalty in full regalia. And there was the prince. Diane tried to quickly recall, okay, what was it? What did I have to do? What can't I do? What, what? Oh, I'm so nervous. Right? I'm so anxious. What? But then all of a sudden the prince stood and quickly walked over to them. And gave the warmest of welcomes, extending his hand to her. He greeted her by name, introduced himself by his first name, and showed her to her seat himself. The rest of the 15 men followed suit, and the family was greatly honored and, and graciously welcomed. She says this, the gracious, the gracious sheik Blessed my husband and me, stepping across all those divides that protects his name and status, inviting us to sit at his right hand and be waited on and receive honor from the one he came to honor. He gave us a small but rich taste of the Lord of heaven and earth seated on the throne. This earthly prince who inspired awe in me by crossing over position, tradition, culture, gender, and training to greet me with his right hand reminds me of the awe due to my true Lord who at a cost beyond measure, crosses over the barriers of highest position and of sin and death to welcome me at the right hand of the Father. The sheik did not follow protocol. He broke the social rules. He could have been even criticized for it, but he chose to use his power, not for his own glory, but to bless. We pray to an infinite God who has infinitely more power and authority than the sheik who whose rule and reign are endless both in time and space and chooses to use his power to bless. Make no mistake, we are intimate with God, but we are not equals to God. He is our Father and our King, our Father in heaven. Well, 
now we come actually to the, next, the first petition of the prayer. Hallowed be your name. After seeing this father, after seeing this king, here's the request. Here's, here's our request. Hallowed be your name. Now, what does hallow mean? Right, what does hallow mean? What does it mean to actually hallow something? Because it's, it's not really a term we use daily, right? Hallow. Okay. So listen, when, when what you hallow is threatened, you get angry. Okay? You, you attempt to justify its existence in your life with a defensive posture, whether it's your job or family, video games, boyfriend, girlfriend. Um, hallowing something is the thing that is most important to you, right? your greatest treasure, something that is so sacred to you, that to hallow something is to make something holy and sacred. Okay? And you can do that with pretty much anything. When I hallow something, it's taking an ordinary thing and making it sacred somehow. Okay. So, for instance, in Exodus 3, 4 to 6, when God calls out Moses from the burning bush, and he tells Moses, for the place in which you're standing is holy ground, God hollowed the dirt. <laughs> you know, He made ordinary dirt and made it holy and sacred that he asked Moses to take off his shoes. In, in 2 Chronicles 7, 1 to 3, after the temple was finally finished by King Solomon, and he lets out this glorious prayer and thankfulness and celebration and worship, and then, all of a sudden, what happens? The house is filled with fire. The glory and the presence of the Lord fills that place. And people chant, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. This inanimate, decorated temple becoming hollowed by the glory, fire of the Lord, filling where he would reside with his presence. Listen. From praying this prayer ever since I was a kid, I, for the longest time, I've always thought that this part of the prayer was a prayer that asked God to help us hallow his name, right? To make his name holy, set apart, exalted for the highest priority. Lord, help me, help us really make your name sacred, right? Really make it holy, right? Really make it set apart. Like, do that for us, Lord. Man, was I wrong. Okay, look, based on the passages we looked at, who is doing the hollowing? Was it Moses? Was it Solomon? Who was doing it? Yeah, God. Good job. Was that a youth? That was, a, that was someone catalyst? I have candy for you. Come. Okay? <laughs> I will reward you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, God, right? God himself was doing it. Look at Isaiah 48, to 11, 48 verse 11. For my sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory... I will not give to another. The very first thing we ask God to do after we see him is, Father in heaven, make your own name holy. Reveal yourself to us. And when we see him in our natural response, it's in utter awe. Right? We see you only because of you. Hallowed be your name has this sentiment of, Lord, we have a tendency not to have a high view of you. <laughs> we so rarely take you seriously. We, in fact, diminish your name and your place in our lives. We are experts in making you less than who you actually are. So God, elevate your name in me, through me. Elevate your name for all to see. Reveal yourself to me, to us and to the rest of the world. May I give you the honor and respect and glory you deserve because you are so easily ignored and forgotten. Hallow your name. Father, King, Hallow your name. 
Lift up and set apart your name. Bring glory to yourself. Because when you see God for who he is, a father in heaven, this is the only prayer that makes sense. This is the only prayer that makes sense. We see you. Now, that, now, that, now, now do what only makes sense as we witness you. Be known. Be glorified. You do it. You do it. Psalm 67 articulates this. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine upon us that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. Do you hear what's going on with this part of the prayer, hallowed be your name? Do you hear the chorus of the heavens echoed by his people through this prayer, hallowed be your name? This prayer is a mark of one who has Christ. It has to. Who in their right mind would pray this prayer on their own? Where do you get the motivation and the energy? What grace is given to his people when we're able to utter from the depths of our hearts, you glorify your name, not me, you, right? That's the grace we've been given in God by the power of the Holy Spirit to utter such cries to our Father, to our King, you do it, you do it because everyone else needs to see this, right? I'll close with this. Do we understand what Jesus is trying to get with, with these first lines of this revolutionary and transformative prayer? Do you, these verses, prior, these verses, Jesus, he's first teaching us how, let's rewind real quick. He first teaches us before going into this prayer in Matthew 6, he, te- he first teaches us how not to pray, okay? That's why in verse 6 it says, this is how you shall pray, right? Because he's talking about, here, this is now not to pray. So the first thing he does in Matthew 6 to 5 and 8 says, don't pray like the hypocrites. Because you know what they like to do? They like to go out and show off. Show off themselves and, and show people how eloquent and long their prayers are for their own glory. He's basically saying, do not use God for your own gain, right, when you pray. Don't do that. And then second... He goes on in verse 7, and also when you pray, don't heap up empty phrases like the Gentiles do, right? Like pagans do, for they think they'll be heard by their many words. The more that they talk, the more that they they try to speak, the more that they think that they can control God. What's Jesus saying? He's like, do not pray to manipulate God. So he's saying two things, right? In prayer, do not use God and do not manipulate God. Don't do that when you pray, right? He is not to be used. He is not to be manipulated, so then Jesus goes, well, then this is how you shall pray. Right? Verse 9, then pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. This first phrase that we're studying right now, this is God-facing. This is God. This is a God-focused prayer. Right? Who he is first before anything else, including his provision for us. This prayer teaches us that the first thing you ask for in prayer is not things, but what you ask for in prayer is who? Your Father and His glory. Jesus is saying, first and foremost, ask for God. But before you ask for anything else, seek the Heavenly Father. This is a seeking of God's face first before His hand. A seeking of God's face first 
before his hand. David Henderson says this in his book, Transforming Prayer. He calls this worship-based prayer. Worship-based prayer seeks the face of God before the hand of God. God's face is the essence of who he is. God's hand is the blessing of what he does. God's face represents his person and presence. God's hand expresses his provision for needs in our lives. I have learned that if all we ever do is seek God's hand, we may miss his face. But if we seek his face, he will be glad to open his hand and satisfy the deepest desires of our heart. Seek his face before his hand. That's how the Lord's prayer starts. His presence before his provision. Because his face is everything you've been searching for and more. When all is said and done, when we will be face to face with our Father and majestic King, witnessing his beauty and crying out, be lifted up, be exalted, bring glory to your name with the chorus of angels, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, is a prayer. It's a prayer that we will see come true every single day for all eternity. So let's say those very words frequently and powerfully. Let's pray.